Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Aaron Burr was charged with it. So was Jefferson Davis. But Donald Trump became the first president in modern U.S. history to accuse his predecessor of it. He's also charged congressional Democrats, the news media, and former FBI Director James Comey of it. The charge is treason. But in the 232 years since the Constitution was ratified, fewer than 30 cases have been brought formally. The crime is defined in just a few lines in Article 3 of the Constitution. Quote, treason against the United States shall consist only in levying war against them or in adhering to their enemies, giving them aid and comfort. Carlton F.W. Larson, the Martin Luther King Jr. law professor at the University of California, Davis, has studied the history of American notions of allegiance and treason, and he examines the legal thinking and several notable cases from history in his latest book on treason, A Citizen's Guide to the Law. It is published by Echo, and I'm very pleased that it brings Professor Larson to our show. Welcome. Thank you. Happy to be here. The meaning of treason in Article 3 sounds straightforward, levying war against the United States, supporting its enemies. Has the interpretation of that proved more complicated over the past two centuries? Absolutely. Um, the phrases, as you, as you point out, they seem very simple and uh, straightforward, but they're actually quite tricky. Uh, and the Supreme Court of the United States has, has warned um, that these phrases um, are incredibly deceptive, um, and this is an area where intuitions and sort of uh, obvious first takes on what treason might mean um, are just not to be trusted. Um, they say the little clause is full of um, snares and difficulties. Um, so it has been uh, a source of a lot of uh, dispute. In fact, uh, the phrase, words like them and their, which we will address a little while later, uh, complicate the situation, don't they? Uh, in terms of making this the states uh, plural, yeah. yes. It, it sounds like you're really that it's really not about the United States as a whole, but as uh, states. Yeah. So it's it's um, you know uh, levying war against them, meaning the United States mm -hmm. as states. Um, states that are united in that sense. And that's oh, not uncommon in the Constitution where it kind of refers to the United States as, uh, as plural. Um, but at the same time, it recognizes treason against something called the United States, which is different from treason against particular states. Well, if you ask an American to name a traitor, probably Benedict Arnold's name would come up. The Constitution wasn't drafted until 1787, seven years after Benedict Arnold's defection to the British. So under what law was he held a traitor in 1780? Well, he was subject to, I think, sort of two sets of laws. One is he probably would have been subject to uh, military authority as a member of the Continental Army. Uh, and then he was also subject to state treason laws. So he was um, uh, proclaimed as a traitor in Pennsylvania, where he had lived uh, most recently before he moved to West Point, uh, and his property there was confiscated. His uh, property in Connecticut was also confiscated. Uh, but he escaped. I mean, he fled to the British and um, was never caught. So we never actually had a chance to give him a uh, trial. And it's an interesting question whether it would have been um, you know, a military trial or um, a, a, civil, a trial in a, in a civilian court. It probably would have been a military trial, given that he had been a, a general. Uh, 
You write that since 2016, treason has become hot again and that you've received numerous calls from reporters asking whether certain events can be called treason. And they, that's come from both the left and the right? Yes, absolutely. The uh, impetus initially um, for the calls I started getting about uh, treason was uh, claims about uh, Donald Trump and his connections with Russia. So uh, as more and more revelations came out, things about Michael Flynn, the meeting in the Trump Tower, and so forth, uh, he was regularly denounced as a traitor uh, by folks on the left. Uh, and then, of course, Trump, I think he'd been doing this earlier, but he really sort of amped up the rhetoric later, uh, where he started turning around and calling everybody uh, that he disliked uh, a traitor. And so, you mean, Nancy Pelosi is now a traitor, Barack Obama is a traitor, Joe Biden uh, is a traitor. All these people he's convinced uh, have committed uh, treason, and none of those, those claims have any um, credibility. Well, do lawyers and legal scholars nowadays agree on what treason means under the law? For the most part, it's pretty settled. Um, and the reason it's largely settled is because the definition is really quite narrow. Uh, and so the number of times where it's come up has been very few. There just aren't that many uh, decided cases dealing with it. Uh, there's certainly gray areas where, you know, if a case were to be brought, um, one could imagine lawyers or judges reaching different conclusions um, on particularly close cases. Uh, but most cases are really quite simple. Uh, are your political enemies traitors? No, they're clearly not. Now, isn't treason the only crime defined in the Constitution? Why was it singled out? And what did the founders hope to accomplish by defining treason? One of the things they were really worried about was that this was a crime, perhaps more than any other, that is most subject to abuse by the government that it's a crime where the people in power will say that anyone who disagrees with us or who is undermining us or trying to uh, you know, throw us out of office is a traitor. Uh, and so it had been the subject of abuse uh, at various points in English history. It had been the subject of abuse in other countries. Uh, and so the framers were concerned uh, that if this crime wasn't narrowly defined, uh, it really risked putting ordinary political dissent and political disagreement uh, at risk um, by misguided and improper treason prosecutions. Uh, they themselves have been subject to this during the revolution uh, and in the years leading up to the revolution where some of their resistance activities when they were opposing uh, British tax policies had been claimed to be treason uh, by British legal authorities and they were threatened with being hauled to England for trial uh, and deprived of a local jury that they would have had um, here in North America. So it was a crime that they were deeply familiar with. I mean, they had been charged with it. They had, they, they had committed it themselves. Uh, and they knew that you really need to keep this under control uh, as a basic check of a, of a sort of a functioning democratic society. Well, didn't the founders adopt much of their language and thinking about treason from English law, really old English law? Uh, yeah, that's actually the, one of the, uh, go one ahead. Of the I'm curious sorry. things. Yeah, sure. Yeah, that's one of the curious things about this one. The phrase, the treason clause in our Constitution is probably the one that is invoking the oldest legal language of any other part of the Constitution. And that is because the phrases here, levying war uh, and you know, adhering to enemies, giving them aid and comfort, uh, this comes directly from a 1351 English statute of treasons, uh, which had been set out to limit the crime of treason in England uh, in 1351. Uh, so, well, why, why did they do that back then? Well, it's actually about um, inheritance of land. Uh, if, you were, if you died 
and were convicted of a felony, your um, your lands would go to your highest lord up. Uh, but if you were convicted of treason, those lands would go to the king. Uh, so that meant that an expansive definition of treason benefited the king and it harmed wealthy nobles, so the wealthy people in parliament sought to limit the crime of treason. Now, they included a lot of other things. They had things like compassing the death of the king, sleeping with the king's wife, mm-hmm. um, counterfeiting, killing various royal officials. Um, so the American founders got rid of all of those, but they kept these two phrases, uh, levying war and adhering to enemies. Uh, and they did so deliberately. Uh, all the evidence from the Constitutional Convention and the ratification debate shows that this was meant to incorporate English decisions on those subjects. So these are sort of technical legal terms of art. They weren't just um, picked out of the air, um, but they had a long history of interpretation behind them. Uh, the leaders of the gunpowder plot, the attempt to assassinate James I in 1605, were hanged, drawn, and quartered. Uh, that wasn't... Uh, the, the the founders weren't thinking along those lines, but doesn't the language about punishment seem opaque to a modern ear? Quote, the Congress shall have power to declare the punishment of treason, but no attainder of treason shall work corruption of blood or forfeiture except during the life of the person attained it. Attainder? Corruption of blood? <laughs> what does all of that mean? <laughs> yeah, I mean, these are what, that's one of those things. If you put that to, I think, you know, you know, every you know, asked every lawyer in the country to define it. I think maybe one out of, you know, four thousand could probably get that right. It is really arcane. It's just you know, it's not part of the Constitution anybody focuses on, and the language, uh, as you point out, is really dated. Uh, but it meant something back uh, in the 18th century, and what it meant was actually uh, quite important. And that was um, under English law, if you were um, convicted of treason. Uh, you were deemed essentially legally have never existed. Hmm. Um, and that meant not only that all of your property was, was seized and uh, you, were, you were hanged, um, but it meant that your children couldn't inherit through your line. Um, so let's say you died, uh, you were hanged for treason, and then your, your father died and your son now wants to inherit as his grandson's heir, as his grandfather's heir. Well, he can't um, because he would trace his connection through, through you. Um, but you've been um, aiming for treason, so you legally don't exist, therefore he can't inherit, even though he's completely innocent. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was what was called corruption of blood. It meant that your blood was corrupted. Uh, and so down the generations, um, uh, you, you could no longer have an inheritance rights that, that for, for your children. Uh, and so the founders said, well, this is, just, this is just wrong. You know, we don't punish children for the sins of the fathers. Uh, and uh, that that violates just fundamental principles of justice. So, um, but that's what that um, provision uh, is meant to prevent. The Constitution also specifies that, quote, no person shall be convicted of treason unless on the testimony of two witnesses to the same overt act or on confession in open court. Were the founders concerned that charges of treason might be leveled too easily? Yeah, and this is a um, a really tough standard. Um, the, the two-witness requirement has uh, um, some roots going all the way back into the Old Testament, and, and you see it in various uh, bits of European and English law. Uh, but what's unique here is that it's two witnesses to the same overt act. Um, so that is two people have to see the exact thing that you did. Um, it's not enough to just have them, oh, one person saw you do this thing, and another person saw you do something else. So one person saw you pick up the intelligence from the enemy and then, uh, or from, from the government, and then another person saw you hand it to the enemy. That's not good enough. 
uh, you have to have two people do the same thing. Now, that's a very tough standard. Treason is the only crime uh, which has that evidentiary standard, and that is why I think in a number of cases prosecutors just don't don't pursue treason charges because they don't have uh, mm. the two witnesses uh, who can who can prove that. And, and then in, in federalist. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, sorry. I say, uh, this, this raises you know some questions now because you know in the 18th century, everything was proved largely through eyewitness testimony. Um, but what happens now if you have something like say video surveillance tape you know, that mm. clearly shows a person doing it, or what if the person is you know as a lot of crimes now are just committed by a person on their computer. You know, you you could easily pass secrets to the enemy using just your computer. No one is going to see that. You're not going to have eyewitnesses to that. So that, that does pose some problems. Uh, Which brings to mind what James Madison wrote in Federalist 43, quote, newfangled and artificial treasons have been the great engines by which violent factions have usually wreaked their alternate malignity on each other. So um, he, what were the newfangled or artificial treasons uh, that he was talking about? Were political opponents charging one another with treason two centuries ago as as often as Donald Trump does now? Uh, it was it was a problem. I mean, Madison may have had in mind uh, the period of, uh, of Henry VIII, where, you know, treason was expanded significantly uh, beyond uh, the original 1351 uh, English statute, and it became treason, you know, to question uh, the king's claim to the crown. It was treason to question uh, the validity of the king's marriage. Um, all of those things had been added and then were later seen as sort of regrettable uh, instances of, of tyranny. Uh, so I suspect it was things like that that Madison was, was concerned about, um, sort of taking the long view uh, of if history. I'm speaking with Carlton F.W. Larson, professor of constitutional law at UC Davis, about uh, what we learned from his new book on treason, A Citizen's Guide to the Law published by Echo. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. There is a debate now about declarations of war, the, the notion of a war on terror. Were there questions about what constituted levying war in the revolutionary era and afterward? Well, so there's sort of two strands of, of treason law. So one is you know the levying war aspect, which tends to deal with internal rebellions where, where people are trying to overthrow the government. And then there's the question of uh, whether a foreign enemy has to be the subject of a declaration of war. Um, and with respect to that, the answer usually is no. Um, you don't have to have an actual declaration of war so long as there is an actual state of open war. So things like the Vietnam War or the Korean War, there were no less wars even though um, war hadn't been formally declared. And I think things like um, you know, uh, our actions against the Taliban, the Taliban are an enemy, I think ISIS is an enemy, Al-Qaeda is an enemy. Uh, but terrorists generally are not an enemy, and then we sort of, you know, say war on terror in a very broad sense. But that's, um, you know, that's essentially analogous to say the war on drugs or the war on poverty. I mean, these aren't real wars uh, in, a, in a legal sense relative to treason. But how would the, uh, what this militia in Michigan is uh, now being accused of, be thought of in those terms. Weren't they talking about the overthrow of the governments of Michigan and Virginia? Yeah, the Michigan thing is is, is that treason? Really fascinating thing. Well, it it could be. Uh, so I actually have a chapter in my book on uh, the crime of what I call the forgotten crime of treason against the state, 
uh, and that is many states still have treason laws. Um, historically, they'd existed during the Revolution, and then um, they continued after that, and then the new states kept, you know, added treason laws. So Michigan says... Including California, where you now teach? Yeah, I believe so. Um, not, not every state has them. Um, there are a few that don't. Some just define it in their constitution, but don't actually make it a crime. Uh, but Michigan uh, says, you know, that treason against Michigan is le includes levying war against Michigan or adhering to their enemies, to its enemies. Uh, and so I think you could argue that a, an armed attempt to overthrow the Michigan government by kidnapping its government, its governor, uh, you know, with the intent to change public policy in Michigan, that historically would have been viewed uh, as uh, an act of levying war. Uh, where it gets tricky is that um, it was so far we only had a conspiracy. Uh, to do it. They didn't actually carry it into effect. Uh, and a conspiracy to levy war was not considered an actual act of, of, of treason. It wasn't uh, something that could be punished, but it had to be punished separately. And so, But if they actually carried it out or had made some significant steps towards carrying it out, uh, I think they probably could be tried uh, under Michigan law for treason. And that wouldn't be limited uh, by the U.S. Constitution, so it may not have uh, some of the same requirements that uh, we would have under Article Three. Weren't there a number of rebellions in the U.S. after the Revolutionary War? Shays Rebellion, the Whiskey Rebellion, Prize, Dorr, Nat Turner. How many of them led to charges of treason? Uh, the, the most significant ones came out of the Whiskey Rebellion and uh, Freeze's Rebellion uh, in the 1790s. And both of these were in uh, Pennsylvania. Uh, and in those cases, people were brought to trial. Um, the Whiskey Rebellion, there were a couple people who were convicted. Um, they were ultimately pardoned uh, by George Washington. Um, Freeze's Rebellion, there were also uh, a few people convicted, and they too were pardoned by uh, John Adams. And this created a big split uh, between Adams and uh, Alexander Hamilton, um, who, who didn't support uh, the pardons. And it was one of his reasons for uh, ultimately opposing Adams uh, in the 1800 election. What about the slave rebellions? Nat Turner, could he have been charged with treason? After all, it was against oh. the state. Yeah, I don't. It, yeah, it certainly wouldn't have been against the United States. It possibly could have been under individual state law. I believe one state, uh, I think it was South Carolina, had a law uh, that that recognized slave rebellions as a type of uh, of treason. So, but 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 Nat Turner wasn't tried for treason. He was uh, tried for other reasons. Uh, yeah, about, and that, and that, yeah. Go ahead. So, I mean, and, and that's that's often the case when you know that that there usually it's hard to commit you know levying war against the state or levying war against the United States without also committing uh, some type of other crimes along the way. So um, you can usually also be charged with things like murder or arson or mm -hmm. um, you know conspiracy or, or, or whatever. The, the language in the Constitution doesn't include anything about the nationality of, of uh, those accused of treason or, or where they act. Can foreign nationals be accused of committing treason? In some circumstances, yes. Even if they're not so, in the United States? Um, if they're not in the United States, then they wouldn't. Um, but if you have a foreign national who is present in the United States, they're um, deemed to have what's called local allegiance. Uh, and that means that while they're here, uh, they have to adhere to the laws of the United States. That includes the laws against uh, treason. And many countries have similar laws so that if you're in their country, uh, you're subject to their laws. Um, maybe the best example of this is the case of um, James um, 
sorry, his first name wrong. Um, last name was Joyce, but he was colloquially known as Lord Haha, and he was actually an American citizen who had lived in uh, Britain, and then he uh, went over to Germany during World War II and broadcast for um, the Nazis, and he was tried for uh, treason in Great Britain, even though he was uh, a U.S. citizen, and he was actually hanged uh, for treason. He was the last person hanged uh, for treason in Great Britain, and it's sort of an interesting fact that you know, the last British trader was actually an American, uh, and they didn't hang any Americans during the Revolution, uh, but they did hang one after World War II. Well, Ezra Pound also uh, supported the the, uh, the Germans uh, and and uh, and the and Mussolini, uh, and he was imprisoned. Was that for treason? Yeah, he was charged with treason uh, for a series of radio broadcasts that he had made in Italy during the war, and then he was brought to the United States. Um, he was brought before the court um, with the indictment, and then uh, his doctors uh, asserted that he was uh, not mentally competent to stand trial. And there's some doubt as to whether that was actually true or not, or whether they were simply trying to protect um, mm -hmm. a great American poet. And so he then spent the next 12 or so years uh, in St. Elizabeth's Hospital in Washington, D.C., and then he was eventually declared competent, was released from the hospital, and at that point the government had decided to drop the treason case, and so he then, went, I think, went back to Italy where he lived out the rest of his life. You mentioned earlier that uh, not every state has uh, a law that prohibits treason. New York doesn't, for example, although it was one of the original 13 colonies. Um, uh, you mentioned California does. Now, what would constitute levying law against the state of California but not be a crime against the United States as a whole? It would have to be a type of rebellion where you tried to overthrow the California state government, but you had no uh, actual design to overthrow the U.S. government. Uh, so that is, you're perfectly content with the, the U.S., but you, you disagreed uh, with your own state government. Uh, historically, we've, we've had a few examples of that. There was um, the Door Rebellion in Rhode Island in the 1840s, where there was a dispute over what was the legitimate government of Rhode Island. Um, both sides had no problem with the U.S., but they disagreed over who controlled Rhode Island. Uh, and then there was uh, John Brown's raid uh, of Harper's Ferry in 1859, where he uh, was tried for treason against Virginia because he was, in, in their view, trying to overthrow uh, the government of Virginia. Um, but he didn't seem to have a similar design against the government of the United States. Well, he was a leading figure of the abolitionist movement, so he could be considered a traitor by some and a hero by others. Yeah, he was a. It was interesting. Interesting that they chose to charge him with treason against Virginia instead of, um, you know, a variety of other offenses that they could have charged him with. Uh, and there was some dispute as to whether he even was subject to Virginia treason law because he had never lived in Virginia. He'd never set foot in it until he, you know, crossed the river uh, at Harper's Ferry. And so there was an argument made that he was essentially similar to an invading foreign army. So, for example, when the British um, you know, invaded the U.S. during the, the War of 1812, uh, they burned the U.S. Capitol. They were levying war against the United States, but they weren't subject to American treason law because they were, a, you know, foreign soldiers. Uh, so they didn't owe any, any allegiance to the United States. So Brown's attorneys argued, well, he doesn't owe allegiance to uh, Virginia because he's a, he's a foreign warrior. You know, he's coming in from out of state to, to wage war. Uh, well, the Virginia, of course, didn't buy that argument. Now, uh, Donald Trump, President Trump uh, has uh, talked about not giving uh, money on uh, to some states, blue states mostly. All, and most recently, 
he uh, has decided not to help California and uh, the other Western states uh, to deal with their, their fire problems. Could he be charged with treason at a state level for policies that were intended to selectively harm certain states? Uh, no, I don't think so. I mean, for two reasons. I think well, one is he's he's not a, a resident of California, so he doesn't owe any allegiance to California. Um, and then secondly, I don't think um, you know withholding money would count as uh, levying war or adhering to enemies, which I think would be the California standard. Mm-hmm. Well, given the language of Article Three, could every Southerner who took up arms against the Union during the Civil War have been charged with treason? Yes. Um, but but only Jefferson was, Davis was was charged. So when uh, you know General Lee surrendered to General Grant at Appomattox, uh, Grant granted these very generous uh, surrender terms, which said, you know, basically, you 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 guys will go away, and the United States will not uh, pursue you any further, uh, which is sort of understood to mean you know, you will not be charged uh, with treason. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's something that you know. Look, no one was going to charge you know 100,000 you know people with treason uh, in the aftermath of the Civil War, and that just wasn't going to happen. Um, you mean no no rebellions really ended that way. Um, so and then Andrew really, Johnson, you know, he really uh, did everything possible to reverse any thoughts about uh, the negativity of the the Southern Rebellion. Yeah, so I mean this this is the typical problem. Like once you've crushed a rebellion. Is do you, you know, pursue treason charges against every last person, or do you try to bring them back into the into the fold? And almost always the strategic move has been to bring people back into the fold. Now Jefferson Davis was a special case because he was the you know the leader of the Confederacy. If, if you're going to hang one person, uh, mm-hmm. it would be him. Uh, and if you don't hang him, then you really can't hang anybody else, right? Because you can't just let the leader go uh, and and hang you know lower level folks. Uh, so his really became sort of the, the key test case, and uh, there were a lot of legal obstacles to it. Um, there were some ad- adverse rulings uh, from Chief Justice uh, Chase, who gave a very tortured reading of the 14th Amendment to suggest uh, that Davis couldn't be prosecuted. Uh, so ultimately, Johnson threw in the towel, and uh, Davis received uh, a pardon. Just a century ago, in 1921, weren't there violent disputes between coal mine workers and management in West Virginia? How did a battle between labor and management lead to allegations of treason? This is one of the, I think, the more um, bizarre and fascinating stories in my book, and it's it's one that's is is, is you know is well known to historians of uh, West Virginia and Pennsylvania, and it's through them that I learned about it. Uh, it is not one that treason scholars have known about. Um, all the books on, on treason say uh, that there were uh, only two instances of treason against the state since the Constitution, and that was Door Rebellion and Brown. But there's actually um, these trials in 19, early 1920s in West Virginia where uh, you had a, uh, a state government that was heavily dominated by uh, coal interests. Uh, there were some miners who were uh, imprisoned uh, in one county, and a large army of miners formed uh, in another county to march and uh, free these miners. Uh, well, in response, the state created a counter-army, uh, and then they ended up going at it um, out in the mountains. Uh, the most famous battle was called the Battle of Blair Mountain, uh, and you had you know, open warfare. Um, Including the use America. of aircraft. Yes, yeah, even even using aircraft. Um, you know, And this is, what about, you know, 200 miles from the White House, 
uh, and so ultimately the 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 miners lose uh, the war, and then some of them are charged with uh, treason. Uh, one was uh, convicted, but he um, or was was uh, he was on bail, and he and he fled. Um, and then other the other cases ultimately fizzled out. But um, you know, for a lot of people, well, why is West Virginia charging these people with uh, treason? And the argument was, well, they were levying war against the state because the state was on the side of the uh, of the miners. Sorry, of the of the of the of the, of the coal management. Could could something similar be done in response to uh, social movements like Black Lives Matter? Um, there's always a risk of that. I mean, this has been one of the concerns about you know abuse of treason law was that it can be used uh, to suppress various social movements. So it wasn't just the, the miners. There were attempts by Pennsylvania to use treason law uh, against like the homestead. Uh, strike uh, in the 1800s. Uh, so um, one would one would hope that that wouldn't happen now. I think it's quite unlikely. I can't imagine um, prosecutors actually trying to bring that kind of charge. One would hope that that thing is, is consigned to the dustbin of history. You're listening to Leonard Lopez at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, and we are streaming live at WBAI.org. Okay, well, before we get back to my conversation with Professor Carlton F.W. Larson, I need to talk to you about something very important. Like most public radio stations across the country, WBAI has been severely challenged by the pandemic, and a lot of our longtime listeners have had to drop their support for the station for financial reasons, which is why we are asking anyone who is able to in this time of crisis to please step up and, and make a contribution of any amount to help keep community radio and Leonard Lopez at Large on the air and coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. And the way to do that is by calling us right now at 516-620-3602 or by going online to give to wbai.org. Uh, becoming a sustaining member of the station, what we call a BAI buddy, is one particularly great way to support the station without having to shell out a lot of money at any one time. And we have a special offer for anyone who becomes a BAI buddy today in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large. If you call 516-620-3602 or go to give to wbaiorg today, we would be happy to send you a copy of the book that we've been discussing, On Treason, A Citizen's Guide to the Law, by my guest, Professor Carlton F.W. Larson. All you need to do is call right now, 516-620-3602, or go to your computer or smartphone and visit give2wbai.org and sign up at the monthly amount of $10, $15, $20, or whatever you're comfortable with to be taken out of your credit card, your debit card, or whatever's easiest for you. And that's it. We will take care of the rest. Becoming a BAI buddy is a great way to support the show while giving the station a steady source of support. But however you contribute, the important thing is that you play your part in 
helping keep this show and this legendary radio station, the last station on New York City's FM dials that's completely listener sponsored because we receive no corporate underwriting of funding grants of any kind, if keeping it healthy and alive. One last time, the number to call is 516-620-3602, or you can go online to give to WBAI.org, and please make sure to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Locate at large. And from all of us at the show and the station, thank you very much. Now, um, returning to my guest, uh, my guest is Carlton F.W. Larson, who is uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Professor of Law at the University of California Davis School of Law, uh, where he teaches American constitutional law and English and American legal history. Uh, you may have uh, seen him on some television shows because people often consult him uh, on matters, legal matters. Uh, and recently a lot on what constitutes treason. His book is uh, called On Treason, A Citizen's Guide to the Law, published by ECHO. Um, so uh, we, uh, the, the U.S. has engaged in numerous wars, as you mentioned earlier, uh, but haven't there been fewer than 30 prosecutions for or formal allegations of treason? Does the number of prosecutions seem low given the number of conflicts we've engaged in, I think I think it is low. This is a you know big question of how how many times has treason actually been committed against the United States, and of course that's an impossible question to answer. You know, if it's done successfully, you know you wouldn't know. Uh, and but but presumably the number is probably fairly large. I mean, you can think about this. You know, the Civil War itself. I mean, that's a very large number. There were large numbers of people during the Revolution who or sided uh, with the British, and there's probably been, you know, other instances uh, as well. But yeah, the number of actual prosecutions is is fairly low, and the number of convictions is low, and uh, the number of executions is actually only one. Um, so it's not a crime that is regularly prosecuted uh, in this country. I mean, I mean, most prosecutors will go their entire career without ever encountering a treason case. I think in the last 50 years, there's only been one. Uh, actual treason indictment uh, that has been brought. Well, and that's perhaps because other laws uh, handle the problem. Uh, but you say the right, the most extensive analysis of aid and comfort, that part of the uh, the treason uh, constitution clause, was in 1945 when the U.S. Supreme Court heard an appeal of a treason conviction for the first time, which involved Nazi saboteurs. What did the the court decide? What was that case all about? Yeah, that was a very interesting case. Uh, it involved, uh, you know, Hitler had this plan to send Nazi saboteurs into the United States, uh, and they were uh, they landed on a two submarines, um, on Long, one in Long Island, one in Florida. Uh, they got out of the submarine in their Nazi uniforms. They took the uniforms off, buried them uh, in the sand, and then blended into the United States where they were planning to commit various acts of sabotage. Well, several of them made it into New York City, um, where they ended up meeting up with uh, a, another man named Anthony Kramer, and the government believed that Kramer was supporting and helping the saboteurs in their plot. Uh, well, what had he supposedly done was he had taken some of their money, held it in a bank deposit box, uh, and performed various uh, other tasks for them. Uh, but the only witness 
well, they had two two witnesses to was him meeting with these guys at a bar and drinking uh, in New York, and then they had one witness for the, the other the other things, and so the question was, well, if you only have what do the two eyewitnesses have to testify to? Does it have to be something that in itself is an act of treason, or can it just be sort of part of this larger chain of events? Uh, and what the court said, and it was five to four, uh, was that um, simply meeting up with people to drink isn't enough, um, that that wasn't part of the, of the mission. Uh, if anything, that was probably a distraction from the mission. Uh, and so you couldn't rely on that uh, as actual proof uh, of the treason. Uh, now, the dissenters said, well, this just makes treason much more difficult uh, to prove uh, and makes the way easy uh, for the traitor to escape. What happened, uh, the most recent case, I guess, was uh, when with Adam Gadan, who was indicted in 2006 for aiding al-Qaeda. Um, he was the last American charged with treason? Yes. So he was um, the last, um, and also he was, at the time, about the first in about 50 years to be charged with treason, and he was an American-born uh, individual. He came from Southern California, and then he ended up uh, converting uh, to Islam, uh, and he moved to um, Pakistan and Afghanistan, and kind of back and forth between them, and he became a member of al-Qaeda. Uh, and because he was American-born, he spoke fluent English, uh, and so he became a propagandist for al-Qaeda, producing uh, various videos in which he would denounce America and supported uh, the cause of al-Qaeda. So he was then indicted uh, for treason, uh, for aiding the enemies of the United States. Uh, and if he'd been caught, I think you know, he would have gone to trial, and we would have had our first treason trial in, in a very long time. Uh, but what ultimately happened was he was killed in a drone attack, mm. so he wasn't actually brought to trial. Didn't members of both parties suggest that Edward Snowden uh, was a traitor for, for leaking information about American surveillance programs? Yeah, when his story broke, I mean, the, the sort of uniform condemnation from uh, from both sides. And so, you know, both Dianne Feinstein and Ted Cruz, you know, insisted that he was a traitor, uh, that, you know, that he had betrayed the country. And so one of the questions I consider in the book is, well, was Edward Snowden uh, a traitor? And, and the ultimate answer to that is, is no, he's not. I mean, he may well have... Um, you know, been very misguided. He certainly violated various laws, but um, that law was not uh, treason because he didn't do anything with the intent to aid uh, an enemy of the United States, which was what um, a treason prosecution would require. What about the militants who took over the, the Mayer uh, National Wildlife Refuge in 2016? Could they have been charged with treason? They were rebelling against the state. I think under earlier you know, sort of late 18th, early 19th century precedents, um, they probably could be. Um, there was English law that said, you know, that said holding a castle against the king uh, was an act of levying war against the king. Uh, and so you could say that a violent occupation of, of federal property with the intent of sort of dispelling federal authority over that property um, is an act of levying war. So uh, had that case come up in, you know, 1808, um, mm -hmm. yeah, I think there, you could have made it out. Um, the problem is you sort of have some later cases that suggest that you really need an, an intent to overthrow the government entirely. And in this case, you, you, you wouldn't have that and that you would have to charge it instead as a, as, a, as a trespassing or some other type of crime. So do any of the charges made by President Trump against his perceived enemies or those made against President Trump have any legal merit? 
Uh, not that I've seen. I mean, certainly Trumps are, are clearly frivolous. Um, there is kind of a monarchical view of the presidency. I am the state. Right. I mean, he essentially seems to have a view that anybody who disagrees with him uh, is, is, is a traitor. I mean, he even said, you know, people who didn't applaud during his State of the Union address were, uh, mm-hmm. were traitors. I mean, it's just a completely deranged uh, way of thinking about the law. I mean, the charges against Trump, I think, are in some ways a closer call because uh, they do cut much more closely to what historically has been viewed as treason. I understand why people uh, sort of reach for the treason term in a, in a very colloquial sense. Um, probably the closest instance would be the betrayal of the Kurds uh, in Syria, um, which aided ISIS, which is an enemy of the United States. And I think if Trump had done that with the intent of aiding ISIS, um, that could be uh, an be act of treason. But I, don't, I, but, but, yeah, but I don't think he had that intent. I mean, I think his intent was just to, to get us out of there. Uh, similarly, with the Russian bounty issue, um, if he had known about that ahead of time, um, if he had encouraged Putin uh, on the bounties, um, that could be seen as aiding the enemy by aiding um, the Taliban. Um, but it, that doesn't seem to be what happened. It seems what happened was he learned about it and then just ignored it um, and did uh, nothing about it. And I don't, as, as, as offensive and appalling as that is, that I don't think rises to the technical level of treason. Well, James Madison warned that charges of treason could be used as a political bludgeon. Uh, over the course of American history, have there been any other instances? Um, of abuse? Um, well, I think uh, perhaps one of the more um, appalling instances of a treason prosecution occurred um, in the early 1850s, and it dealt with the Fugitive Slave Act. Um, and this was a law passed as part of the Compromise of 1850 that said uh, it was essentially very easy for Southerners to come into northern states uh, and claim African Americans uh, as escaped slaves and to take them back with very little uh, judicial process. And so there was an, an instance where, where a group of people uh, came to do this. Um, it was a man named Edward Gorsuch, who is a distant relative of, uh, of Justice Neil Gorsuch, uh, and he came uh, to try to um, rescue men that he claimed had been formerly been enslaved by him. Uh, and that ended uh, poorly. It ended up in a violent dispute. Uh, Gorsuch was uh, killed, uh, and the people who had resisted uh, his, his party uh, were ultimately tried for treason um, in Independence Hall uh, in Philadelphia, on the second floor of Independence Hall. Uh, you had the trials of um, well over 30 uh, African-Americans, I think the only African-Americans who have ever been charged with treason against the United States, and they were, uh, and the first trial actually was a white man who they insisted was the leader uh, of the whole thing, which um, wasn't true at all, uh, and he ultimately was uh, acquitted. His name was uh, Kastner Hanway, and he was, I think, a completely innocent person who had stumbled into an ongoing event uh, and then was ended up charged with treason against the United States, you know, the highest crime known to the law. And this was all because of the sort of poisonous politics over slavery and wanting to make a point uh, about the Fugitive Slave Act. That Gorsuch family has had a long history of getting involved in controversial situations. The, uh, the current uh, Supreme Court Justice's mother was named the, uh, the head of the EPA by Ronald Reagan, and she tried to undermine all of the the uh, the laws that uh, had been instituted during the Nixon years, the Clean Air Act, et cetera, uh, and she was found in contempt by the Supreme by the uh, Congress. Yeah. 
So it's <laughs> see that name Gorsuch and uh, bells go up. Uh, we, we were talking about current situation. William Barr is reported to have told prosecutors to consider sedition charges for protest violence. And President Trump um, accused a Black Lives leader, a matter leader of, of treason and sedition and insurrection. Uh, have any real legal actions been taken? Is this just a, the kind of talk that you do to um, silence dissent? It's, it's hard to know what, what to make of it. I mean, so far, I don't believe any indictments have been issued on those theories. And I think what Barr was talking about was using um, this crime of seditious conspiracy, which says that you have a conspiracy to uh, attack federal buildings uh, could be tried, and so it was a suggestion to federal prosecutors that they could potentially include that um, in their charges. Uh, and that seems somewhat different than this sort of vague term of, of sedition, which has had a much more troubled history um, over you know, the course of our country. If you think back to like, you know, the post-World War I and the Sedition Act, it made it you know, more or less a crime to criticize uh, the war, criticize the government. Um, so this is a, a different type of statute that seems to be being talked about there, uh, but it's part of a general, you know, sort of sloppiness, certainly by Trump, um, in, in in talking about these things and trying to, you know, raise this sort of fairly low-level uh, type protest into something that um, seemed far more uh, terrifying. So, do league, lawyers and legal scholars nowadays agree on what treason means under the law? Do we need? to have new legislation that uh, gets a little more specific? It's hard to do legislation because the crime is defined directly in the Constitution. So if you wanted to change it, uh, you would actually have to amend uh, the Constitution itself. And that's very difficult because you would need uh, two-thirds of both houses of Congress and three-quarters of the states uh, all to agree. And I mean, nobody's agreeing about anything right now. Uh, and so the likelihood uh, that they could agree on something like that, I think, is quite low. Um, now, at the state level, you, you could change things by statute, because there you don't have um, the Article Three concerns. Um, you know, I think where you're going to see issues is going to become, you know, how does this intersect with uh, technology? Uh, and those laws may be cases that will end up, you know, have to be resolved by courts. You know, what counts as an eyewitness? Um, what counts as levying war? Um, the older cases, for example, say you have to have an assemblage of men, so you have to have multiple people together before war can be levied. A single person can't do it. Um, well, what if the single person has a you know a fighter uh, jet, or the single person has a, a suitcase nuke, something like that? Um, it would seem like that person would be in a position uh, to levy war. Certainly, far more stronger position than four men with guns. Uh, so, I think those types of issues um, may at some point confront courts. Well, Russian uh, have been accused of trying to undermine the American political system using the internet. Uh, is that just too hazy? I think it's too hazy. Um, the, the, usually what you can do when you look at these sort of cyber-type crimes is like look to an, you know, what is the analog equivalent of that. Uh, and so let's, let's say, for example, suppose the, you know, the Russians um, hacked into an election system somewhere uh, and mm -hmm. altered the vote counts, and suppose some American helped them do that. Um, you know, would that be... Uh, treason? Well, no, it wouldn't. Uh, and you think, well, what's the analog equivalent of that? Well, the analog equivalent is you know, stuffing a ballot box. You know, you stick a whole bunch of extra votes in there. Um, and that's been a crime throughout American history, but we've dealt with it with other laws. We have election laws that deal with mm -hmm. that. Um, you know, we don't call that 
uh, treason. And so I think sometimes the the um, the cyber aspect uh, and this term for cyber warfare um, sometimes makes things seem more you know, militaristic uh, than they really are. And so we sort of get, we have to think carefully about you know, what is it actually being done uh, via the computer. You include a quiz of 10 hypothetical cases that might or might not involve treasonous behavior. And I, and I have made a point of not going through them, but do you want to try to stump us on one or two? Um, all right, let me just flip open to that part of... We don't have a lot of time. We have about three or four more in minutes, but yes. uh, I thought it would be fun. Okay, all right. Well, I'll give you the first one here. Um, a White House employee was recently quoted in the New York Times as stating the president was an idiot and completely unprepared to lead the country in the event of a national security crisis. The president has responded by asking the Department of Justice to consider treason charges against both the employee and the New York Times. Have either of these parties committed treason against the United States? Well, obviously the answer is no, but yet with the, uh, I guess a lot of government money will be spent in pursuing something that has an obvious answer. <laughs> yeah, the answer is absolutely right. Clearly, no. I mean, I think the, the employee could probably be could be fired uh, by Trump for for saying that. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, clearly treason is uh, is not an appropriate charge uh, for something. I've like had that. bosses that I called idiots. Um, I, <laughs> uh, in some cases, uh, that led to real problems. But I don't. I didn't see it as treasonous action. I just simply saw it as uh, a. a an evaluation of how my boss was acting. Okay, one more. Yeah, speaking, speaking, speaking truth to power, right? <laughs> <laughs> one more. Um, Give me one okay. that's a little more difficult. Okay. Um, Charles Beaumont, a French citizen, has been living in Baltimore, Maryland for the past 10 years. Recently, the federal government has learned that Beaumont is providing significant sums of money to Al-Qaeda. Can Beaumont mm -hmm. be convicted of treason against the United States? Since he's a foreign national, doesn't that complicate the situation? If he if he became an American citizen, would it be different? Uh, the, actually, no, uh, because he's living in the U.S. He's subject to American treason law. Ah, so we're going to send that guy to jail. But we haven't. Uh, how many people have actually been jailed for treason? Um, it's a very small number. Uh, the number of people convicted um, have. You know, some of them have been pardoned. Uh, some spent time in jail, like after um, World War II, uh, you know, mm -hmm. so-called so Tokyo Rose was in prison for a while. Right. Um, Axis Sally Miller-Jillers um, was in prison uh, for a while. Well, this is still an ongoing conversation, and I thank you so much for being on our show to talk about it and uh, perhaps clarify it for my listeners and me. Uh, Carlton F.W. Larson, a professor of constitutional law at UC Davis, his latest book on treason, A Citizen's Guide to the Law. It is published by ECHO. What a great pleasure it's been talking with you today. Well, thank you so much. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And that brings us to the end of our show. We give special thanks to segment producer Hugh Sansom for preparing today's interview. And a big thanks as well to our live engineer, Reggie Johnson, and to my executive producer, Jesse Lent, for all of the important work that they do throughout the week. 
If you're new to our program and you like what you've been hearing, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're available as an iTunes podcast. And uh, you can also go to our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com, where you'll find links to all of our past shows. And don't forget to check out Leonard Lopate at Large on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, if you would like to reach me directly, uh, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. You might want to send me a comment about a show or just simply say hello. Uh, before I sign off today, I would like to take just one last minute to ask for your support for this station. We hope that you will step up right now to help keep community radio live on your local radio dial by making a contribution at whatever level you're comfortable giving. Remember that we are totally reliant on our listeners. We don't take money. Uh, we don't take advertising money. We don't take money from, uh, well, pretty much anyone. Uh, and the reason is it allows us to be completely independent. But we pay a price, which is that uh, sometimes we run through rough times. And right now, this pandemic has made things quite difficult for us. So we hope that you, if you can, will come through for us right now. And you can do it online at give to wbaiorg or by calling 516-620-3602 right now. Uh, and uh, any, any contribution is tax deductible to the, as Steve Post used to say, to the full extent of the law. And as I mentioned at the half, if you become a BAI buddy during today's show by making a monthly contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large, we would be delighted to send you a free copy of the book that we've been discussing today on treason, A Citizen's Guide to the Law by my guest, UC Davis Martin Luther King Jr. Professor of Law, Carlton F.W. Larson. It's our way of saying thank you for your generosity, but please be sure to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. And from all of us at this show and this station, thank you very much. We are off on Monday, but we hope that you can join us for Tuesday's show when Edward Cornell Professor of Law at Cornell University School, Robert G. Huck will discuss his new book called Financing the Green New Deal, A Plan of Action and Renewal. Have a great weekend. Hope to see you on Tuesday.